Alright, I hope all is well with the research paper. I hope the lectures were profitable and also at least a little bit entertaining. Um, but now we got to play catch up. So last time we did the Odyssey 11 and 12. We spent a lot of time talking about Odysseus's trip to Hades and his visiting with all of the dead people and what exactly that means from the Greek perspective. Um, today we need to talk about Odysseus actually finally making it home to Ithaca, but not being done yet. Um, obviously we probably won't get through the whole thing. My plan is to try and get from Odyssey 13 uh, through Odyssey 19 and 20. Um, 20 is one of the books that is omitted in this version. Um, so we'll talk about 21 to 24 next time. Um, so like if you do have questions about book 21, you might want to listen to the beginning of that lecture before you took the quiz, however you want to do it. Um, but we've got plenty to talk about in this section as it is. Um, admittedly, like the exciting bits of Odysseus' adventure has have kind of trailed off. Like we no longer have all of his interactions with mythic creatures. We don't get you know fancy Cyclopes or Scylla and Charybdis or witch people. Um, and I've, in fact, I think it's kind of interesting that Homer like relegates most of the mythic figures to Odysseus's own telling of his story. Um, like you'll notice even in even in the Iliad like there's not a whole lot of really weird mythic crazy stuff happening like the gods definitely play a role and they do definitely interact with people um, we do get like the weird moment when Hera speaks to Achilles through the mouth of his horse um, we get like you know uh, Apollo whisking away Aeneas and you know Diomedes fighting against both Ares and Aphrodite um, but at the same time, like, we don't get a lot of monsters. We don't get a lot of stuff that couldn't be explained more naturally. Um, everything is character, as far as Homer is concerned in most cases. Like, even the monsters typically have characters. Um, but you'll notice that, like, Scylla and Charybdis, we only ever hear about them third-hand. Uh, like, through Odysseus's story about Odysseus's adventures. Um, there's sort of this insinuation... Um, throughout that like Odysseus could be exaggerating because really like would you really trust Odysseus um the whole point the whole sort of driving force of his character is that he is a skillful liar that he does disguises um even when he admits his identity uh in the Phaeacian kingdom even when Alcinous is asking him straight out who are you stranger and he says well I'm Odysseus like why would he tell the truth at this point? Why wouldn't he embellish this story? Um, why wouldn't he add a bunch of monsters and, you know, like demigods and, you know, sorceresses who Odysseus is just mad attractive to, so he just, you know, sleeps with these people. I, I think Homer is sort of attentive to, to the mythic quality of storytelling across the board. Um, you know, the same way that you would, like, exaggerate your fish story. Like, maybe you caught a fish that was a foot long, but, like, every time you tell the story, it gets a little bit longer until you're like, yeah, it was, like, five feet long! Um, Odysseus could very well be embellishing here. We never get the straight truth. Um, we only get it through Odysseus's perspective, which I think is important in this particular passage because, you know, as much as I was talking a little bit earlier about the importance of disguises in this text... This is the section when all the disguises happen. Um, and in fact, I think it's kind of fascinating that like in uh, book 13, after the Phaeacians get o Odysseus back to Ithaca, 
we get this really interesting sort of like interaction between Odysseus and Athena where both of them are lying to each other, where both of them are disguised in front of each other. Like Athena pretends to be, you know, this random person walking along and Odysseus pretends like he's not Odysseus, but just this random castaway. Um, but first, let's talk about the setup a little bit. Because um, I want to sort of talk about the Phaeacians especially. Um, like, we spent a little bit of time talking about them a few lectures ago, like, ver at the very beginning of the Odysseus discussion. Um, like, remember how th they're special because apparently, like, the Phaeacians, they always, they always make it to their destination. Their ships always successfully get people where they're going. Um, and they know that this is only a matter of time. Like, it's been prophesied that they're going to be, like, locked in a mountain and Poseidon is just going to get so mad at them um, that he just, like traps their island so they can't escape anymore and they can't successfully navigate um and we'll notice you should notice that this happens like in the text it's not the it's not the part that we read but you'll notice like on page 369 um the our editor lombardo writes lines 129 to 93 are omitted poseidon turns the phaeacian ship to stone as it sails into the harbor and hems in the island with a mountain um Notice, like, they get busted for helping Odysseus. Uh, and that, that's so typical of the gods and the way that the Greeks see um, see the gods and fate in this case. Like, the Phaeacians know it's just a matter of time until they get busted and Poseidon, like, finally takes them out and locks them in this mountain so they can't deliver passengers anymore. But it makes sense that Poseidon would do this as vengeance for Odysseus's safe passage. Like Poseidon is so freaking mad at Odysseus um, that this is this is the breaking point for him. Um, when the Phaeacians successfully deliver Odysseus to Ithaca with all his gifts, because they like give him a lot of swag. Um, I think it's even argued at one point that like there's more swag that the Phaeacians give Odysseus than he would have brought back from Troy if everything had gone well. Um, Ode and Poseidon is just so mad that he just like shuts him down. Uh, the Phaeacians are not a thing anymore. Uh, and I'm also kind of struck by, like, on the trip, Odysseus is just sound asleep the whole time. Uh, which makes sense. Like, remember, he just narrated his whole, like, travel story to Alcinous in the court all night long. Like, it's dawn by the time that they're done. Um, so Odysseus just sleeps through the entire voyage. Like, the Phaeacians, like, prepare a bed for him, and he is out as soon as they start off and they like pull, pick him up and deposit him on Ithaca and he doesn't even wake up. Um, they're careful to put him like off the road so nobody just robs him, but remember all this swag. But even so, like it's really, he's obviously exhausted here after getting washed up on shore. Um, and it's interesting too that like Odysseus spent so much of the time in this epic asleep. Um, like remember this is how he entered Phaeacia as well. Um, like he, he washed aboard after ditching his clothes and he's like sleeping naked in the forest. Um, when the princess shows up and he has to like convince her to take her, take him back with her. Um, but when he awakes, you'll notice that Athena is tricking him already. 
Um, line 195, Odysseus, meanwhile, awoke from sleep in his ancestral land and did not recognize it. He had been gone so long, and Pallas Athena had spread haze all around. The goddess wanted to explain things to him and to disguise him so that his wife and dear ones would not know who he was until he had made the arrogant suitors pay for their outrage. So everything on Ithaca now looked different to its lord. The winding trails, the harbors, the towering rocks, and the trees. Um, notice... Again, the assumption here, like the, the sort of reason why Athena does this, why she disguises the land, is to protect him. Um, so he won't go rushing to his family. Remember, we were warned by Agamemnon in the last section. He came home, Clytemnestra murdered him, and Odysseus is wary about this. He doesn't trust Penelope, because what if she's doing the same thing to him that Clytemnestra did to Agamemnon? What if she she's just waiting to come for him to come home so she can murder him? Um, what if she has some plot with one of these suitors that he's heard so much about? Um, so Athena, like, forestalls this. Odysseus is wise here, but maybe not wise enough. So Athena disguises the place, and when Odysseus wakes up, he thinks that he's in a foreign land, and he's actually grumpy about it. He's like, who knows what kind of people live here? Lawless savages or God-fearing men who take kindly to strangers. Like, oh my God, I don't want another adventure right now. The last time this happened, it was Calypso. And the time before that, it was Circe. And the time before that, like, every single stop he has made has ended in tragedy for him. Even if it was like a good hospitality place, like where he got the bag of winds, it ultimately ended badly. So the last thing he wants is yet another random island with yet another bunch of savages who are going to wreck him because they don't recognize the laws of hospitality. Um, but as much as like he's grumpy about this, then Athena comes up as a shepherd. Um, so notice this, this, this conversation between the two of them, starting at line 230. Um, and then Athena was beside him in the form of a young man out herding sheep. She had the delicate features of a prince, a fine spun mantle folded over her shoulders, sandals on her glistening feet, a spear in her hand. Odysseus's spirits soared when he saw her, and he turned to her with these words on his lips. Friend, you were the first person I've met here. I wish you well. Now, don't turn on me. Help me keep these things safe and keep me safe. I beg you at your knees as if you were a god, and tell me this so I will know. What land is this? Who are the people here? Is this an island or a rocky arm of the mainland shore stretching out to sea? Athena's eyes glinted with azure light. Where in the world do you come from, stranger, that you have to ask what land this is? It's not exactly nameless. Men from all over know this land, sailing in from the sunrise and from far beyond the evening horizon. It's got rough terrain, not for driving horses, but it's not at all poor, even without wide open spaces. There's abundant grain here, and wine grapes, good rainfalls, and rich, heavy dews, good pasture, too, for goats and for cattle, and all sorts of timber, and year-round springs. That's why Ithaca is a name heard even in Troy, which they say is far from any Greek land. And notice, Homer manages to sneak in a good bit of exposition, a good bit of setting here when he talks about this. Ithaca is a good island. It's a good place to be. And remember when we were talking about Polyphemus's island and Odysseus, like, takes a long digression to talk about how great the island is. Like, it's very fertile. Anything will grow there. It's got protected harbors. You can totally use this to protect your ships. We get something similar here. It's got rough terrain, so it's not ideal. Horses have a, um, have a tough time, like, navigating it. But it's still got abundant grain and wine grapes, good rainfall, rich dews, good pasture for goats and cattle, lots of timber, springs that keep producing water. It's a good place to be. The, what's most interesting here is that it is a rough place. 
which is kind of appropriate for for Odysseus. Like Odysseus is smart and wily because his island is a tough place to get along, but a rich one if you can if you can get past it. If you can break ground, if you can navigate its difficult terrain, then you can totally reap abundant rewards. Um, it's more than it seems on the outside, just like Odysseus and just like Athena at this moment. And Odysseus, who had borne much, felt joy at hearing his homeland described by Pallas Athena, Zeus's own daughter. His words flew out as if on wings, but he did not speak the truth. He checked that impulse, and, jockeying for an advantage, made up this story. I've heard of Ithaca, of course, even in Crete, far over the sea, and now I've just come ashore with my belongings here. I left as much to my sons back home. I've been on the run since killing a man, or Silicus, Idomeneus's son, the great sprinter. No one in all Crete could match his speed. He wanted to rob me of all the loot I took out of Troy, stuff I had sweated for in hand-to-hand -hand combat in the war overseas, because I wouldn't serve under his father at Troy, but led my own unit instead. I ambushed him with one of my men, got him with a spear as he came back from the fields. It was night pitch black no one saw us and i got away with a clean kill with sharp bronze notice he concocts this whole story like he borrows the identity of somebody else um but also like he explains his situation i am on the run i am the wealthy noble lord who murdered a man but murdered him in self-defense in good just interest um and that's why i have all this swag like i am here i am escaping i am like belong somewhere else um but this also explains why i am have all this money and all of these good things um i am looking for a new home is what it comes down to um and notice athena's response athena smiled at him her eyes blue as the sea and her hand brushed his cheek she was now a tall beautiful woman with an exquisite touch for handiwork and her words had wings only a master thief, a real con artist, could match your tricks. Even a god might come up short. You wily bastard, you cunning, elusive, habitual liar. Even in your own land, you weren't about to give up the stories and sly deceits that are so much a part of you. Never mind about that, though. Here we are, the two shrewdest minds in the universe. You, far and away, the best man on earth in plotting strategies, and I famed among gods for my clever schemes. Not even you recognize Pallas Athena, Zeus's daughter. I, who stand by you in all your troubles and who made you dear to all the Phaeacians. And now I've come here, ready to weave a plan with you and to hide the goods the Phaeacians gave you, which was my idea, and to tell you what you still have to endure in your own house. And you do have to endure, and not tell anyone, man or woman, that you have come home from your wanderings. No, you must suffer in silence and take a beating. Notice how much Athena admires Odysseus here. Like, they are two peas in a pod, and she even states this. We are the true shrewdest minds in the universe. Um, they are very much kinship, and we've not seen anything like this before. Like, we've seen Athena interfering in mortal affairs before. She prevents Achilles from, like, stabbing Agamemnon at the beginning of the Iliad. She backs up Diomedes on his rampage. Um, she bolsters Achilles with, like, food after he's gone without eating for a long time. But here we have Athena not only, like, protecting a mortal for her own interests, but protecting and complimenting a mortal for being on her level. Like, you get the sense that Athena is saying here, like, man, good conversation is so hard to find. 
It is so difficult to find someone as intelligent, as wily, as crafty as I, Athena, am. But you, Odysseus, you're the one. You could outsmart the gods if you wanted to, most of them anyway. And here I am tricking you. Like, they are... This is a game to her, and a game to him as well. Like, as much as the deceit is necessary for Odysseus, like, Athena obviously knows that it's Odysseus that she's talking to, and while Odysseus does not know that it's Athena who is coming to him. But when Athena reveals herself, she's not doing it as, like, immortal goddess, creator of the universe, like, unparalleled power, like Apollo, you know, you are a tiny bug. But instead, it's like, no, we are totally on the same level. Like, here we are, the two shrewdest minds in the universe. Um, Athena not only protects Odysseus, she sympathizes with him. She patronizes him because she respects him in a way that no other mortal has been respected by a god in most of our stories. Like, the only parallel I can think of is when, like, Heracles is bumming around doing his quests and he like takes the the sacred hind of artemis and artemis is like fine i guess i'll let you go because you're heracles um but even then you get this sense that it's kind of begrudgingly like well you're protected by zeus so i guess i'm not going to mess with you but here we have athena is legitimately interested invested in odysseus's life she respects him she wants him to succeed for his own sake she would probably be friends with him um and she stresses this to to him. I stand by you in all of your troubles. I have been protecting you since day one. And admittedly, I didn't want to piss off Poseidon. You gotta, you know, respect your, your elders, your uncle. But nonetheless, like, I helped here. Um, I want you to do well. So, you know, they go back and forth on this. Um, and, like, again, she she stresses his intelligence. Um, like Odysseus initially wants to test, uh, to, to sort of like investigate the place before she, she, um, before he's willing to like admit that it's Odysseus, before he goes home, like expecting a, a reception. Um, he's even suspicious. Like he, he's, he says, I think you're just giving me a hard time and trying to put one over on me. Tell me if I've really come to my own native land. Um, remember, Odysseus has expressed before his suspicion of gods and goddesses. Like, remember when he was on his crappy little raft and it was getting broken to pieces and the giant, like, storm that Poseidon threw at him and this random water nymph shows up and she's like, here, wear this fancy veil that'll make you not drown. And Odysseus is like, oh, crap, not another goddess. Like, the last thing I want is some other supernatural being interfering in my affairs. Even when Athena shows up and she's like, oh, Odysseus, you're my absolute favorite. Odysseus is like, are you you lying to me are you trying to trick me again and athena if anything respects this even more ah that mind of yours that's why i can't leave you when you're so down and out because you're so intelligent and self-possessed any other man come home from hard travels would rush to his house to see his children and wife but you don't even want to hear how they are until you test your wife who as a matter of fact just sits in the house weeping away the lonely days and nights notice athena reveals that penelope is loyal and odysseus isn't willing to take it Odysseus distrusts Athena um, as much as Athena admires Odysseus. Um, distrust is in his nature. Like, he is suspicious of everyone at this point, and for good reason. Like, think of how many times he has landed on some foreign shores and gotten completely screwed. 
Think of Agamemnon warning him, like Clytemnestra totally murdered me when I came home, better watch it with Penelope, as trustworthy as she seems to be. It's tricksy. Um, so Odysseus is being super duper careful, almost paranoid here. Um, but it's paranoia that is warranted by everything that he's gone through, all the suffering he's been through. Um, so Odysseus does in fact recognize the land shortly afterwards. Like uh, Athena draws her attention. She gives him the grand tour. Like here is the harbor. Here are the naiads. Here is the cavern. Like you know this place. You you lived here. And Odysseus, this is when he admits it. Like he's he's just really excited to see everything. Um, but even then, he doesn't trust Athena all the way. He's not going to take her word for it that Penelope is trustworthy. And Athena accompanies him on this. Um, like she reveals to him that there are all these suitors just waiting for him to come home who will kill him on sight because they want his land and his territory. And Odysseus notes that this is just like Agamemnon, um, that this is exactly what Agamemnon worried about or warned him about. Um, so they, so she disguises him. In the same way that she appears to him disguised, she disguises him as a beggar, and this is going to be the act that Odysseus puts on for literally everyone, with the exception of Telemachus, who will in fact get the inside information. Um, but she also gives him some initial instructions. And this is the second thing I kind of want to focus on here. Um, the person who Odysseus trusts at this stage, the person who Athena points him to is Eumaeus, the swineherd. Um, and you'll notice Eumaeus gets the Patroclus treatment in this epic. Um, so like in the little blurb at the end of book 13, where Lombardo explains why he omits 14 and 15, he calls Eumaeus the faithful servant who tends the swine. But you'll also notice throughout book 16 and going forward, Homer will frequently refer to Eumaeus as you, Eumaeus, my swineherd. So like line 66 of book 16, and you answered Eumaeus, my swineherd. Um, Eumaeus is as admirable in the Odyssey as Patroclus was admirable in the Iliad. Um, Homer chooses Eumaeus as the character he addresses this epic to. Um, and notice why. Like, unlike Telemachus, Eumaeus doesn't actually get the inside information. He, he is not told that Odysseus is Odysseus. He just takes in this random beggar, assuming that that's what, he would, that that's what Odysseus, his master, would have wanted him to do. Um, like Telemachus, like Odysseus, hospitality is a huge priority for Eumaeus. And it's a tough time to prioritize hospitality because again the suitors are totally wrecking the place they are taking advantage of the hospitality you would think at this point that they would kind of be soured on it but instead this beggar shows up and Eumaeus is like yeah come live in my house here let me get you food let me present you to the family let me bring you to the estate like the 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 suitors even yell at him over this and Eumaeus is just not flapped by this like he's not upset about it um Eumaeus is upset about the suitors he also recognizes that the suitors are a bunch of interlopers who are just wrecking the place and causing problems um and Eumaeus is unflinchingly loyal like we will see this over and over again in the way that Eumaeus behaves um notice like when Telemachus comes into the swineherd's hut at the very beginning of Odyssey 16 um as soon as Telemachus shows up the swineherd jumps up, greets his master, and kisses him. Um, 
And notice that we even get one of these Homeric metaphors here around line 20. And as a loving father embraces his own son come back from a distant land after 10 long years, his only son, greatly beloved and much sorrowed for, so did the noble swineherd clasp Telemachus and kiss him all over. He had escaped from death, and sobbing he spoke to him these winged words. Um, Eumaeus is overjoyed to see Telemachus return safely. And remember, like, the suitors are plotting his death. We've seen them at this point a little bit in this text, but it's also been, like, heavily omitted. Lombardo frequently, like, drops the suitors' various adventures um, because most of them don't go anywhere. Uh, but Eumaeus is really happy. He's overheard the, the suitors talking about killing Telemachus. And now that Telemachus is home safe and sound, he's overjoyed. He is 100% loyal to the family. Um, he is observing the principles that Odysseus and Telemachus have built this household on. Hospitality, love of one's, love of strangers, um, protecting the family and this land. Um, and Eumaeus does this. He is the embodiment of a good servant in the same way that Penelope is the embodiment of a good wife. Um, and again, this is very much a Greek cultural indicator here. Like, notice that both of the characters Homer chooses to sort of address his poem to are not that impressive. They're not noble. Um, Patroclus was an orphan adopted by Peleus, raised to the level of a warrior, but always secondary to Achilles. Eumaeus is a straight-up peasant, a servant. He works for Odysseus's family. He lives on their land. He is not noble. He is not, you know, high-born. He will never fight in a war, even though he does actually get some battle time here in uh, the end of the Odyssey. Um, but he is fiercely loyal. This is what Homer is pointing to. He is like, this is what the average Greek Joe should model their life after. This is what it means to be a good servant, to be a good worker. Um, so Telemachus and Eumaeus discuss a little bit. Um, they talk about how Penelope is still at least safe, if still upset and weeping all the time. Um, Eumaeus introduces Odysseus as a beggar to Telemachus. Um, and Telemachus is bummed about this because, again, he is already entertaining all of these suitors and it's really difficult for him to imagine like supporting even more people uh, on his dime. Um, and plus he knows that if like this beggar shows up in the, in the banquet hall, the suitors are just going to like mock him and throw things at him. Um, and there's nothing that he can do about it. He's not strong enough to fight. Um, so, but he still tries, um, notice line 85, but as to our guest, now that he's come to your house, I will give him a tunic and cloak, fine clothes and a two edged sword and sandals for his feet and passage to wherever his heart desires. Um, he will protect this beggar from the suitors as much as he is able. Um, even He even doesn't want them, want this beggar to come to the house because he thinks that there will be trouble. What I won't allow is for him to come up there among the suitors. They are far too reckless and arrogant, and I fear they will make fun of him, mock him, and it would be hard for me to take that. But what could I do? One man, however powerful, can't do much against superior numbers. Now, Odysseus who is, again, pretending to be the beggar, sympathizes. 
he is he responds that you know oh it breaks my heart to hear that the suitors are eating you out of house and home this really sucks if only odysseus would come back and beat the crap out of them and telemachus agrees like he definitely wishes that odysseus were there to beat up all the suitors and you know kick them all out um but his situation is impossible at this point until odysseus returns but athena gives odysseus the information um she prompts him line 180 son of laertes in the line of zeus tell your son now and do not keep him in the dark so that you two can plan the suitor's destruction and then go into town so telemachus is going to be in on the deal athena tells odysseus it's all right um she like takes off the disguise briefly so like he goes from being this like shriveled little hunched over beggar to like being big strong scary manly uh, odysseus and as soon as Telemachus sees him, he's like, whoa, you really changed in, like, going outside for one and a half minutes. And Odysseus is like, oh, nope, I'm, I'm your father. And they have this really touching moment. Like, um, Telemachus initially doubts it, which, again, is typical. This is Odysseus' son, after all. He, too, is slightly paranoid. Um, but Odysseus reassures him. No, I am Odysseus. This is Athena's doing. She is the one who disguises me back and forth. Um, and Telemachus embraces him. They are united. They are ready to be one united front against the suitors. They are willing to work together. Telemachus will be the inside man, and Odysseus will do his job as well. Um, but let's look at the plan. First off, Telemachus warns Odysseus. There are 118 total suitors, if we count the bard and uh, the herald and the like, carving attendants. Um, there's a giant pile of people who are there who they'll need to fight against. And Odysseus, and like, Telemachus is initially like, well, who are we going to get to be our allies? And Odysseus is like, well, how about Athena and Zeus? And Telemachus is like, those would be pretty good, but, you know, they're gods, so why, why would they be, you know, caring about us? Um, but Odysseus, like, he is certain. After all, he's just been talking to Athena. So he devises this plan, and we got about three parts to this plan maybe four um so notice this this passage this is line 281 those two meaning athena and zeus won't hold back from battle for long they'll be here all right when the fighting starts between the suitors and us in my high roofed halls for now go at daybreak up to the house and keep company with these insolent hangers-on act like nothing is wrong is basically what odysseus is saying the swineherd would lead me to the city later looking like an old broken down beggar if they treat me badly in the house just endure it even if they drag me through the door by my feet or throw things at me just bear it patiently try to dissuade them try to talk to them out of their folly sure but they won't listen to you at all because their day of reckoning is near so phase one odysseus is going to come to the house like with eumaeus through the town he is going to basically do the beggar thing he is going to beg for food um and the suitors will, as Telemachus predicted, make fun of him. Maybe even throw things at him. Maybe get, even get violent. But Odysseus stresses, don't give away the game. Um, pretend like I'm just a beggar. Pretend like like ev everything is what it usually is. Go ahead, dissuade them. Do what you would normally do in this situation. Don't act like I'm your dad. 
And here's something else for you to keep in mind. When Athena in her wisdom prompts me, I'll give you a signal. When you see me nod, take all the weapons that are in the hall into the lofted storeroom and stow them there. When the suitors miss them and ask them, ask you where they are, set their minds at ease, saying, Oh, I have stored them out of the smoke. They're nothing like they were when Odysseus went off to Troy, but they are all grimed with soot. Also, a god put this thought into my head, that when you men are drinking, you might start quarreling and someone could get hurt, which would ruin your feasting and courting. Steel has a way of drawing a man to it. So, phase two, Odysseus is going to, like, signal to Telemachus, and Telemachus is going to spirit all the weapons out of the hall. Um, like, in a big central hall like this, typically you have a ton of weapons on the walls. Again, remember, you display the armor of the people you've defeated. That's, like, how you win honor and glory. But it's also for a secondary purpose. Um, if your estate is attacked... Because remember, like the Greeks like to go around raiding other islands on a fairly regular basis. Typically, you muster all of your servants, you get all of your, the household together, and you get them all in your main banquet room, pick up all the weapons, and then you defend the house. Um, so the, the main banquet room is simultaneously like, here are all the stuff that I want in my various conquests, here are all the great weapons I have taken off of dead people, but also, and this is where I will mount my defense if in fact my island gets invaded or attacked. Um, so there are all these weapons around. But he instructs Telemachus, when I give you the signal, take all the weapons and move them out of the room. Which makes a lot of sense. If you are going to be fighting against a vastly outnumbering force, what you should probably do is take every advantage you can, i.e. get all their weapons away. But, he stresses at line 310, leave behind a couple of swords for us and two spears and oxhide shields. Leave them where we can get to them in a hurry. Pallas Athena and Zeus and his cunning will keep the suitors in a daze for a while. And one more thing before you go. So, we're going to... Spirit away all the weapons, disappear them, and if Telemachus gets asked, he's just going to say, oh, they're really dirty, we need to clean them up. Also, people tend to fight when there are weapons around, you guys are drunk all the time, so it's just a matter of time until somebody gets hurt, so I'm protecting you, really. But, we're going to keep a couple weapons stashed away, so when it comes down to fighting, Odysseus and Telemachus will be the only people in the room with spears and swords. That should even the odds substantially. One more thing before you go, he says, if you are really my son and have my blood in your veins, don't let anyone know that Odysseus is at home. Not Laertes, not the swineherd, not anyone in the house, not even Penelope. You and I, by myself, by ourselves, will figure out which way the women are leaning. We'll test more than one of the servants, too, and see who respects us and fears us, and who cares nothing about either one of us and fails to honor you. You're a man now. Now we stress that Telemachus has come into his manhood like early on, back in back in our first lecture. Um, so I won't stress it here. But notice that he is stressing: a, keep my identity secret; no one can know, not even Penelope. But the reason why we're keeping it secret is because Odysseus is going to be going around testing all of the suitors, finding out which ones deserve their death. Um, now it should be remarked that like. Even though he is doing this, even though, like, Athena has directed him to test the suitors, Athena also mentions she's not going to save any of them. Um, the key here is the servants. Um, which of the servants have remained faithful to Odysseus despite his long voyage, despite his long absence? And like the servants, also the maids. 
Remember, the suitors have been in the house for a long time, and as I stressed before on the first lecture, they've probably been getting really friendly with a lot of the maids. So what Odysseus is doing is finding out which of the maids have been consorting with the suitors. Because if a maid has slept with one of the suitors, um, it is likely that she is now expecting that suitor to protect her. So her allegiance is now greater to the suitor than it is to Odysseus's household. And if Odysseus busts in and just like starts whacking suitors, these maids could turn against him. They could find a way to arm the suitors that are their favorites or to get them out of the, out of the house in some way and cause like a, a giant scale war. Um, so he wants to test the loyalty of the maids as well and off any of them that have betrayed him in some way. Um, and we start to see this played out here. So in book 17, we see Odysseus uh, first walking through town as predicted um, and then making it finally to the estate where he will start begging with the suitors. Um, but before we even get to the estate, notice the interaction that they have with Melanthius, the goat herd. Um, in my first lecture, I stressed that we don't really need to know that much about the suitors. Don't like panic about their names because I know that they're just confusing. We have like so many names that we're keeping track of anyway. Um, but the three that we should probably keep an eye on are Melanthius, who is not a suitor. He is a goat herd. He is one of Odysseus' servants and a very disloyal one at that. Um, and then the other two that we should definitely keep an eye on are Antinous, who is very much the ringleader of the suitors, and Eurylochus, who is sort of like second in command, or Eurymachus, not Eurylochus, that's somebody else. Um, so we also have Melantho, the, the maid, who is also a problem. We'll get back to her in a bit. Um, but let's, let's break each of these characters down one by one and see Odysseus's interactions with them. Um, so first we have Melantheus. Like while they're in town, uh, while Eumaeus is taking him through the town and sort of like making sure that Odysseus is seen to sort of like uh, solidify his his cover as a beggar, um, Melanthius approaches them and says, this is line 272, listen to the dog talk with his big bad notions. I'm going to take him off in a black ship someday, far from Ithaca, and sell him for a fortune. You want my prayer? May Apollo with his silver bow strike Telemachus dead today in his halls, or may the suitors kill him as surely as Odysseus is lost for good in some faraway land. Um... So as much as Eumaeus is, like, loyal, Melanthius is totally disloyal. Earlier, when he first interacts with Eumaeus, he says, Well, look at this! Trash dragging along trash! Birds of a feather, as usual! Where are you taking this walking pile of shit, you miserable hog tender? This diseased beggar who will slobber all over our feasts? How many doorposts has he rubbed with his shoulders, begging for scraps? You think he's ever gotten a proper present? Cauldron or sword? Ha! Give him to me and I'll have him sweep out the pens and carry loads of shoots for the goats to eat. Put some muscle on his thigh by drinking whey. I bet he's never done a hard day's work in his life. No, he prefers to beg his way through town for food to stuff into his bottomless belly. I'll tell you this, though, and you can count on it. If he comes to the palace of godlike Odysseus, he'll be pelted with footstools aimed at his head. If he's lucky, they'll only splinter on his ribs. Um, Melanthius is totally in league with the suitors here. Um, now, admittedly, like, he doesn't say that much bad about Telemachus until later. Again, that first passage that I quoted around line 275. Um, but it's clear that he 
A is disloyal to Telemachus, who is the rightful ruler of the household, uh, but he's also not good practicing good hospitality. Like, here is this beggar, this stranger, sacred to Zeus, he is protected, um, and yet Melanthius is talking about like how great it's going to be when the when the suitors start like pelting him with footstools when he comes to the estate. Um, how he doesn't he's probably never done a hard day's work in his life. Um, how he is a walking pile of shit, a diseased beggar who slobbers all over our feasts. Um, and I should remark, just if this sounds familiar, it should. And the morality is not different in that sense. Um, our nation struggles with the subject of immigration and exactly how that's supposed to work. Let me be clear here, the Greeks would absolutely be against the like anti-immigration policies that are in place here. And I don't say that like from the perspective of, you know, recognizing that um like trying to make a point about like politics today. I stress this because the the logic and the argumentation is very similar in both cases. Like this sounds like a Trump speech, to be perfectly honest. When Melanthius says, you know, birds of a feather as usual, where are you taking this walking pile of shit? This diseased beggar who will slobber all over our feast. I bet he's never done a hard day's work in his life. Um, these are the sort of lines we hear when we justify being crappy to people. Um, and Homer's morality here is roughly the same as Democrats, to be perfectly honest. Like, it's not subtle. Um, when this assumption that a beggar is someone who is shiftless, who doesn't work well, who is disease ridden, this is all demeaning. Um, and in the Greek culture, protecting beggars, protecting strangers is an important part of, you know, being godly, being pious. Um, in the same way that the Christian tradition is supposed to emphasize protecting strangers because they could always be an angel in disguise, so does the Greek tradition emphasize protecting strangers because they could always be a god in disguise, or for that matter, a demigod. Um, Zeus plays tricks on people. And we'll see this stressed again later in the chapter. Um, so if we look, when uh, Antinous is sort of insulting Odysseus, um, Odysseus stresses this point about beggars and about, um, about people, about people who are down on their luck. Um, you'll notice on line 450, it says, give me something, friend. He addresses Antinous. You don't look like you were the poorest man here, far from it, but the most well off. You look like a king, so you should give me more than the others. If you did, I'd sing your praises all over the earth. I too once had a house of my own, a rich man and a wealthy house, and I gave freely and often to any and every one who wandered by. I had slaves too, more than I could count, and everything I needed to live the good life. But Zeus smashed it all to pieces one day, who knows why, when he sent me out with roving pirates all the way to Egypt so I could meet my doom. Notice the, the emphasis here is this could happen to you. Um, the difference between a beggar and a rich man is a couple of bad months. What Homer is emphasizing, what Odysseus is emphasizing, is that we do not take care of beggars out of some sort of misguided sense of generosity. We take care of beggars so they will take care of us when our fortunes are reversed, as inevitably will be the case. Remember, Zeus is completely unpredictable. He is not even remotely fair in this perspective. We talked last time about how he just dicks Odysseus over again and again and again. 
Like he dicks Odysseus over making him eat the cows and then he dicks Odysseus over for eating the cows. Like it is bad. And this happens. The Greek world is well aware of this. Um, there is a moral sort of prerogative, a moral imperative that Odysseus is stressing. Feed beggars, take care of strangers, because one day that's you. That could happen to you. And people will remember when you were a dick. Um, if you do not feed those less, less fortunate than yourselves, the day will come when you lose your fortunes and you will not be fed. It's only fair. It's only just. Zeus will protect beggars um, because they need that protection. Um, so Melanthius's attitude, and Antinous's for that matter, is very wrong from the Greek perspective, or at least from Homer's perspective. It could be that Homer is trying to get his own political agenda across. There are tons of Greeks who are like, oh, I'll take care of beggars. They're a bunch of shiftless louts who don't do anything, never worked a day in their lives. You know, again, same as we say now. And Homer, like liberals today, is basically trying to make a political argument. No, you know, beggars don't necessarily, aren't necessarily lazy. They could be in bad circumstances, so give them a break, because maybe one day that will happen to you. Um, the argument is virtually the same, as weird as this is. Um, not that much has changed in, you know, 3,000 years, it seems. Um, but notice, too... Odysseus and Eumaeus, they come up to the house. Um, Eumaeus brings Odysseus into the house. And we get the first person who breaks Odysseus's disguise. Although person might be a bit of a strong term. I refer, of course, to Argus, the hunting dog. Here at line about 317, we have, And as they talked, a dog that was lying there lifted his head and pricked up his ears. This was Argus whom Odysseus himself had patiently bred, but never got to enjoy before he left for Ilion. The young men used to set him after wild goats, deer, and hare. Now, his master gone, he lay neglected in the dung of mules and cattle outside the doors, a deep pile where Odysseus's farmhands would go for manure to spread on his fields. There lay the hound Argus, infested with lice, and now, when he sensed Odysseus was near... He wagged his tail and dropped both ears, but could not drag himself nearer his master. Odysseus wiped away a tear, turning his head so Eumaeus wouldn't notice, and asked him, Eumaeus, isn't it strange that this dog is lying in the dung? He's a beautiful animal, but I wonder if he has speed to match his looks, or if he's like the table dogs men keep for show. And you answered him, Eumaeus, my swineherd, again the you, Ah, yes, this dog belonged to a man who has died far from home. He was quite an animal once. If he were now as he was when Odysseus left for Troy, you would be amazed at his speed and strength. There's nothing in the deep woods that dog couldn't catch, and what a nose he had for tracking. But he's fallen on hard times, now his master is dried abroad. These feckless women don't take care of him. Servants never do right when their masters aren't on top of them. Zeus takes away half a man's worth the day he loses his freedom. So saying, Eumaeus entered the great house and the hall filled with the insolent suitors, but the shadow of death descended upon Argus once he had seen Odysseus after 20 years. So, first off, this is just heartbreaking. Like, poor Argus. He's like this, this hunting dog that Odysseus trained or was planning to, like, get fully trained. He, he trained him up just a little bit, but then he had to take off to go to, to war in Troy. And then 20 years goes by and poor Argus is neglected by all the servants who, you know, don't pay attention to doing their jobs when Odysseus the master isn't on top of them. Um, 
And so Argus is just like sick and lice infested and he's like lying on this dung heap like a pile of literal shit. Um, and we get this little moment like line 328 when he senses Odysseus was near he wagged his tail and dropped both ears and he's not even strong enough to like pull himself over to him. So there's just like it's so sad poor Argus. But notice how this emphasizes Odysseus's return home. Um Throughout this section, you will see little details. Odysseus sort of interacting with, being reminded of the things that make his home what it is. Here is Argus, the dog he trained but never got a chance to enjoy. There's even like this weird paragraph about like the doorpost, where it's like, it's a really well-crafted doorpost. Um, and you get this sense that like, again, Homer is crafting this place to try and emphasize um, to emphasize how much this is Odysseus's home, how these are just little stupid, familiar things that are so important when you've been gone for 20, 30 years. So notice line 367, he sat down on the ashwood threshold, just inside the doors, leaning back on the cypress doorpost, a post planed and trued by some skillful carpenter in days gone by. Odysseus remembers every stick of his house. He remembers when the, when the doorpost was planed by a skillful carpenter. This is his home. He has a connection to every wall, every beam, every stick, every post. Um, this is where he belongs. And yet he comes as a stranger, as a beggar, in disguise, because he doesn't trust it. It's been taken from him. It has been plucked away, uh, transformed and warped. Um, by all of these suitors and all of their sort of allies and agendas. Um, and this is where we also get that line that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so notice like line 390, we get Athena sort of popping in. Athena drew near to him and prompted him to go among the suitors and beg for crusts and so learn which of them were decent men and which were scoundrel scoundrels, not that the goddess had the slightest intention of sparing any of them. Um, so Odysseus goes about his business. He's going to like test all the suitors. It doesn't matter because Athena's going to kill every last one of them, no exceptions, but he is going to test them all the same. And he is fairly successful, like as a beggar is concerned. Um, he goes around all the tables, he goes around all the beggar or all the suitors, and for the most part, they give him food. Um, they all pitied him and gave him something, and they wondered out loud who he was and where he had come from. Now, Melanthius is obviously dumping on him again the goat herd remember that guy that asshole um hear me suitors of our noble queen as this stranger i have seen him before the swine herd brought him here but who he is i have no idea or where he claims he was born and antinous immediately lays into eumaeus swine herd why did you bring this man to town don't we have enough tramps around here without him this nuisance of a beggar who will foul our feast i suppose you don't care that these men are eating away your master's wealth where you wouldn't have invited him and once again this gets political. Notice the way it's phrased. I suppose you don't care that these men are eating away your master's wealth or you wouldn't have invited him. Like, what a bullshit argument. 
um, that Antinous presents here. Like, oh, so you're just going to, like, throw all of your food at beggars now. Like, what do you think Odysseus would think about you wasting all this food? And I love Eumaeus's response. You may be a fine gentleman, Antinous, but that's an ugly thing to say. Who indeed ever goes out of his way to invite a stranger from abroad, unless it's a prophet or healer or a builder or a singer of tales? Someone like that, a master of his craft who benefits everyone. Men like that get invited everywhere on earth, but who would burden himself with a beggar? You're just plain mean, the meanest of the suitors to Odysseus's servants, and especially to me. But I don't care as long as my lady Penelope lives in the hall and godlike Telemachus. And... Telemachus basically calls out Antinous for being a troll. Don't waste word, your words on this man. Antinous is nasty like that, provoking people with harsh words and egging him on. Why, Antinous, you're just like a father for me, kindly advising me to kick this stranger out. God forbid that should ever happen. No, go ahead and give him something. I want you to. Don't worry about my mother or anyone else in this house when it comes to giving things away. But the truth is that you're just being selfish and would rather eat more yourself than give any away. Notice the structure of this argument. Antinous's making this claim, oh, you really want us to feed this beggar? What, are we just going to throw out food now? Like, what a waste. Don't you want to protect your, your father's estate? And, like, imagine the anger, the just flat-out rage in Telemachus's case. Of course I want to protect my father's estate, you asshole, he probably wants to say. Like, absolutely I want to protect my father's estate, but it's not the beggars I'm worried about. It's Antinous and the hundred suitors who are eating his family out of house and home. It is so hypocritical for Antinous to say this, for him to suddenly be concerned about the food that he himself has been gluttonously taking for himself for years at this point. Um, and Telemachus calls him out. The truth is that you're just being selfish and would rather eat more yourself than give any away. Um, notice that, like, Antinous's bullshit morality is called out by Telemachus's clear truth, his clear assessment of what Antinous is doing. Um, as much as there is this sort of, like, praise of disguises throughout this text, there is zero praise for straight hypocrisy. Um, Antinous pretending to be moral while openly being immoral by his pretending to, you know, care about what is happening to Telemachus and his family, except in so far as he is himself taking advantage of them. Um, the only reason Antinous is actually concerned is because he wants more himself, either, you know, right now, like at this meal or down the road when he thinks that he's going to run the place. Um, so you'll notice that like immediately after this speech, Antinous responds by picking up his footstool. Like he's holding it, brandishing it under the table. He's waiting for an opportunity to throw it. Um, he wants to take it out on the beggar since taking it out on Telemachus would be bad form. You don't attack your host. And just there's something so insightful about this entire scene. Like, 2,800 years ago, Homer is talking about the same sort of stupid, pointless, baseless, hypocritical arguments we see on the internet today. Um, people making these hypocritical claims for morality when they are themselves abusing that same moral principle. We have Antinous reacting to Telemachus calling him out by hoping to, for violence against somebody who can't defend himself. Like, it's just such a bully kind of thing to do. Like, Antinous is just being a stupid, mean bully. Eumaeus is right when he calls him out that he is the meanest of all the suitors. 
Like, it doesn't seem scary when Eumaeus says this. Eumaeus can't, like, present it scarier. He doesn't cuss at him like the way that Telemachus does. Um, he doesn't use this biting satire that Telemachus comes up with. He's just, you're just plain mean, the meanest of the suitors. But Eumaeus is totally right. Absolutely, Antinous is just plain mean, the meanest of the suitors. He is pointlessly petty about his meanness. He is just looking for a chance to bully people around and get his own way. He doesn't actually care about any of the moral principles he's claiming to take on. He is a nihilist, as we would call them today. He is a troll, as the internet has deemed it. And notice that Odysseus too responds to him, calls him out. Um, Give me something, friend. You don't look like you were the poorest man here. Far from it, but the most well off. You look like a king, so you should give me more than the others. Um, and notice he immediately launches into this story. I was rich once. I had a house once. I gave freely to beggars. And now my livelihood has been taken away by Zeus. Who knows why? Um, this too could happen to you. Antinous could one day be sitting in Odysseus the beggar's shoes. Um, so notice why Odysseus chooses this particular disguise in this case. He does it to prove his point. It's thematic from Homer's perspective. For Odysseus, it's a good way of calling Antinous out on his bullshit, of explaining why these moral principles are what they are, why they are morality, why it is good to protect beggars and strangers, um, why it is important to observe hospitality requirements. Um, and finally, Antinous does get his opportunity. Like, Antinous is initially calling him a plague, and Odysseus doesn't seem terribly impressed. Um, he, again, calls him out for his tight-fistedness. It's too bad your mind doesn't match your good looks. You wouldn't give a suppliant even a pinch of salt if you had to give it from your own cupboard. Here you sit at another man's table, and you can't bear to give me a piece of bread from the huge pile that's right by your hand. And Antinous chucks the footstool at him. Um, and Odysseus just, like, takes it like a breaks on his shoulder blade and he just doesn't even flinch which should give everybody a little bit of a, a foreshadowing of what's going to what's about to happen um, but he does get food like the suitors do feed him um for the most part Antinous aside and notice again that's kind of the whole point like all the poorer suitors willingly part with their food and give it to Odysseus the beggar but Antinous the guy who is clearly the richest dude at the table is unwilling to part with a crumb um, and everyone calls him out on this. Telemachus calls him out, Eumaeus calls him out, Odysseus calls him out, and eventually all that Antinous does to respond is chuck the footstool at the beggar, the weakest person in the room. Um, like, I cannot stress enough how insightful this is into human nature, how much Homer is just pinning us to the wall, along with all of our hypocrisy and all of our immorality and all of the bad decisions we're making. Um... Now, chapter 18, we see a bum fight. Sorry, folks, but that's what it is. Um, it was entertaining then, just as we watch YouTube videos of bum fights now. Um, we remain terrible people, uh, again, after 3,000 years. Um, but nonetheless, let's take this apart just a little bit, because I do want to focus a lot on Odysseus's confrontation with Penelope. Like, there's a lot to talk about there, and I don't want to waste my time. Um, but we've got, like, this really sort of well-known beggar, Iris, who shows up and he, like, sees Odysseus still dressed up as a beggar. And he's like, hey, 
This is my territory. I do the begging around here. And Odysseus is like, come on, there's plenty of food for both of us. And finally, like, the suitors sort of, like, goad them into fighting each other. Um, and notice, uh, notice that, like, Odysseus just takes him apart. Like, this is probably the most important part of this scene is, like, Iris is just this big scary looking beggar and he's like i'm gonna beat you up and odysseus like takes off his shirt and it's you know odysseus like just sculpted muscle all the way down and everyone is like oh wow crap that guy is apparently a lot scarier than we thought um so they're all like betting on uh, odysseus now um and odysseus literally is just sitting there as iris is throwing a punch at him and he's like how how do i deal with this like, do I just, like, kill him in a single blow? Or do I just, like, lay him out, knock him out, teach him a lesson? And it is one punch. Like, Iris charges at him, and Odysseus just, like, one punch, gone. Um, and they just drag him out, like, as a warning. We get this, this line from Odysseus, Sit there now and scare off the pigs and dogs and stop lording it over the other beggars, or things could get worse. Um, so... Iris is also punished for not observing proper hospitality. Like, least of all should beggars be getting mad at other beggars. Um, all beggars are sacred to Zeus. All beggars are under protection. All beggars, there is an, obli an obligation to provide for them. Um, it shouldn't be reserved to one, and beggars shouldn't be angry at each other. Um, now, the rest of the book, I do want to sort of, like, touch on this blurb here. Notice Melantho, one of the maidservants, absolutely insults and taunts Odysseus. We'll see her do it again in book 19. And then Eurymachus, the other suitor I mentioned that we should be on the lookout for, he also chucks a footstool at him, um, at which point Telemachus like, tells them all to go to bed because it's getting really violent in here. Um, so once again, here is our test. Like the suitors even though many of them do provide food to Odysseus, the big ones, Antinous and Eurymachus, um, they totally fail. They just throw things at Odysseus instead and not the good kind of things that he can eat. Um, but that takes us to book 19. Uh, Penelope wants to talk to Odysseus. Like, she summons him. Um, and this conversation is fascinating. There is just a lot to take apart here. Um, so let's look at this because, again, I want to sort of... This is the best glance that we have of Penelope herself at this point. This is, once again, Odysseus burying himself in a disguise for specific purposes. Um, and once again, like, this is... This is going to be one of those conversations that sort of both confirms and also complicates the Greek understanding of how women operate in their society. Um, so notice, um, first we're introduced to Penelope around line 55. Penelope, wary and thoughtful, now came from her bedroom, and she was like Artemis or golden Aphrodite. They set a chair for her by the fire where she always sat, a chair inlaid with spiraling ivory and silver, which the craftsman Icmalius had made long ago. Um, so she sits down and she takes everything in, and Melantho continues insulting Odysseus, and Odysseus, like, spits back at her, and Penelope is watching the whole thing. She observes, doesn't miss anything. This is what the text emphasizes. She is extraordinarily observant. Um, she takes it all in. 
So she rebukes Melantho. Your outrageous conduct does not escape me, shameless whore that you are, and it will be on your own head. You knew very well, for you heard me say it, that I intended to question the stranger here in my halls about my husband, for I am sick with worry. So notice Penelope is inviting Odysseus to talk with her because she wants information about Odysseus. Now, she doesn't know that this is Odysseus himself that she is talking to for some reason, um, but she wants to question him, wants to get information about her husband's whereabouts. Remember, if Odysseus comes home, he will save Penelope, so it is obviously in Penelope's best interest for this to happen. Um, so she has a chair brought in for him, and Odysseus compliments her. Lady, no one on earth could find fault with you, for your fame reaches the heavens above, just like the fame of a blameless king, a god-fearing man who rules over thousands of valiant men, upholding justice. His rich black land bears barley and wheat, the trees are laden with fruit, etc., etc., etc. He asks specifically that she not ask about his history, as though it's too painful for him. And he will sort of steer away from that all the time. And you kind of get the sense that the reason why he's doing this is because Penelope would totally figure him out. Um, like, as much as Odysseus is great at disguises and great at lying, notice all the emphasis we've seen is, the is that uh, Penelope doesn't miss a trick. If there is anyone who can see through her husband's disguises and wiles and tricks, it's Penelope. Um... So Penelope answers, Stranger, the gods destroyed my beauty on the day when the Argives sailed for Ilion, and with them went my husband Odysseus. If he were to come back and be part of my life, my fame would be greater and more resplendent so. But now I ache. So many sorrows has some spirit showered upon me. All of the nobles who rule the islands, Dulukion, Same, Wooded Zakynthus, and all those with power on rocky Ithaca are courting me and ruining this house, so I pay no attention to strangers or to suppliants or public heralds. No, I just waste away with longing for Odysseus. My suitors press on, and I weave my wiles. And she tells the story of her loot, which we already know. Um, we haven't encountered it in this text yet. Like, this is the first that we are told about it. This is why we know this myth. Um, but it should emphasize here, again... Penelope is smart, crafty, clever, observant, just like her husband. She is a worthy match for Odysseus. Um, now, at this point, the loom trick has broken. Uh, in the fourth year, as the seasons rolled by and the moons waned and the days dragged on, my shameless and headstrong serving women betrayed me, then barged in and caught me at it, and a howl went up, so I was forced to finish the shroud. Now I can't escape the marriage. Um... So, much like Odysseus is screwed over by his crew, so is Penelope screwed over by the maidservants, her employees. Um, they betrayed her to the suitors, and now she doesn't see a way out of getting married. Um, now, Odysseus continues with his story, like he gives a little bit of information about his history, um, or at least his fake history. Again, he came from Crete, there are lots of languages there, lots of stuff going on, and... As we say, all lies, but he made them seem like the truth. And as she listened, her face melted with tears. Now, the thing that he emphasizes here is that he actually crossed paths with Odysseus once upon a time. So Penelope presses him on that. Um, while she weeps, she says to him, Now I feel I must test you, stranger, to see if you really did entertain my husband and his godlike companions, as you say you did. Tell me what sort of clothes he wore, and tell me what he was like, and what his men were like. And Odysseus obviously knows this information, so he talks about the purple cloak and the double clasp and all the fancy garments that he was wearing. Um, 
And he also stresses that he was hospitable to him. Like, if he's hosting Odysseus, of course he was generous to him. Um, which endears him to, both to Penelope and also proves that, like, he knows what Odysseus was wearing. Because, again, of course he did. He is Odysseus. Um, now, notice Penelope's reaction, though. These words stirred up Penelope's grief. She recognized the unmistakable tokens Odysseus was giving her. She wept again and then composed herself and said to him, You may have been pitied before, stranger, but now you will be loved and honored here in my halls. I gave him those clothes. I folded them, brought them from the storeroom, and pinned on the gleaming brooch to delight him. But I will never welcome him home again. And so the fates were dark when Odysseus left in his hollow ship for Ilion, that curse of a city. A couple things here. First off, once again, we're seeing a deep cut of our theme on memory. Notice that Penelope identifies very closely with the clothes that Odysseus wore. This is the test she gives. She knows exactly the outfit that she picked out for him when he embarked on his journey, down to the brooch that she chose, which she herself pinned on his cloak. Um... So this image that Odysseus conjures up of Odysseus in his cloak with this brooch and so on and so forth, this resonates with Penelope. This triggers her memory. This causes her to recall everything and this causes her to weep. Um, these are unmistakable tokens, Homer tells us. But notice that her response is, I will never welcome him home again. The fates were dark when Odysseus left in his hollow ship. She is despairing. Which is weird. Remember, she asked Odysseus, the beggar, like the disguised Odysseus, into her company so she could question him about her husband. She explicitly tells him that if Odysseus comes home, it's like the only way out of her ugly situation. So she's obviously inquiring about where is Odysseus? Did you encounter him on your travels? And while she gets the yes before Troy proof like yes i did entertain odysseus before we all went to troy her insistence at this point is i'm convinced he's dead why would she be questioning this beggar if she truly believes that odysseus is dead something doesn't add up here but keep looking like odysseus's next move is to prove her wrong um, revered wife of Laertes, son Odysseus, do not mar your fair skin with tears anymore or melt your heart with weeping for your husband. Not that I blame you. Any woman weeps when she has lost her husband, a man with whom she has made love and whose children she has borne. And the husband you've lost is Odysseus, who they say is like the immortal gods. Stop weeping, though. And listen to my words, for what I am about to tell you is true. I have lately heard of Odysseus's return, that he is near in the rich land of Thesprosia, still alive, and he is bringing home treasures, seeking gifts and getting them throughout the land. But he lost his trusty crew in his hollow ship of the wine-dark sea. He says, I have evidence. I spoke to someone who saw him um, about the treasure, about Odysseus himself. He swears um, that Odysseus is on his way. Line 337, before this month is out, Odysseus will come in the dark of the moon before the new crescent. So Penelope says Odysseus is never coming home despite the fact that she invites this beggar to tell him about or to tell her about Odysseus. And Odysseus's response is to say, actually, I've got news. He is coming home. Before the month is out, he is going to be here. 
And Penelope responds, Ah, stranger, may your words come true. Then you would know my kindness, and my gifts would make you blessed in all men's eyes. But I know in my heart that Odysseus will never come home, and that you will never find passage elsewhere, since there is not now any master in the house like Odysseus, if he ever existed, to send honor guests safely on their way or to welcome them. Now, she invites him to stay. That's like the rest of her, her speech here. Um, but... Again, notice how this doesn't line up. Like, Odysseus gives her really good evidence. Odysseus is on his way. You have cause to hope. And Penelope insists, no, Odysseus is dead. There is no hope. All I have is, you know, the suitors. My choice is not, like, do I wait for Odysseus? That is done now. Um, I have to make a choice. Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do with the rest of my life since Odysseus is dead? Now, Odysseus asks to have his foot washed. Like, Penelope offers this. This is pretty typical hospitality stuff. Like, people's feet get dirty. That's the price of wearing open-toed sandals all the time, like, everywhere. Um, so your feet get, like, filthy. Um, so Penelope says that she will, you know, send someone to wash his feet. Um, but Odysseus insists, um, none of the serving women here in your hall will touch my feet unless there is some old trustworthy woman who has suffered as I have, um, presumably because he doesn't want to be ashamed. Remember, the serving girls are attractive and a lot of people end up sleeping with them, so it would be shameful, and obviously the serving girls have already been making fun of beggar Odysseus. Um, he wants to have his feet washed, if at all, by someone who is old and respected in the household. So Penelope brings out Eurycleia. Wash the feet of this man who is your master's age, she says. But she also kind of slips here. Of all the travelers who have come to my house, she says, none, dear guest, have been as thoughtful as you and none is welcome. So wise are your words. I do have an old and trustworthy woman here who nursed and raised my ill-starred husband, taking him in her arms the day he was born. She will wash your feet, frail as she is. Eurycleia, rise and wash your master's... That is... Wash the feet of this man who is your master's age. Odysseus's feet and hands are no doubt like his now, for men age quickly when life is hard. All right. What's going on here? Penelope almost slips. Almost says, Eurycleia, rise and wash your master's feet. Almost identifies the beggar as Odysseus. And there are a couple ways we could take this. On the one hand, this could just be like an honest mistake. The, again, she stresses, oh, Odysseus's feet and hands are no doubt like this beggar's, hard and rough. Um, they are roughly the same age. Like she covers for herself. Maybe it was just a slip of the tongue. Maybe it was just wishful thinking. Maybe it was just a Freudian slip. But the alternative is that Penelope knows who Odysseus is. Penelope has figured it out and is testing him as much as he is testing her, which would be kind of appropriate in this situation. Think about it from Penelope's angle. Like, remember when Jason came home with Medea, and then it turns out that Jason has this other girl waiting for him, and then Medea, like, murders everyone? What if Odysseus found someone? What if Odysseus had, in fact, taken Calypso up on her offer, and now he's got, like, Calypso stashed away, and he's just, like, waiting for an opportunity to get rid of Penelope so he can marry the immortal goddess and take over Ithaca again. Penelope could be paranoid just as Odysseus is paranoid. Penelope could be covering her ass here. 
Maybe she's smarter than lets on. Maybe she knows what's up, sees through Odysseus's disguise. Um, anyway, Eurycleia, for sure, picks up on it. Um, like, as soon as Eurycleia shows up, Odysseus is like, crap. Odysseus knows that Eurycleia is going to recognize the scar on his leg. Um, line 425, the scar, it flashed through his mind that his old nurse would notice his scar as soon as she touched him, and then everything would be out in the open. She drew near and started to wash her master and knew at once the scar from the wound he had gotten long ago from a boar's white tusk when he had gone to Parnassus to visit Autolycus, his mother's father, who was the best man on earth at thieving and lying, skills he had learned from Hermes. He had won the gods' favor with choice burnt offerings of lambs and kids. And we embark on this long digression, like three pages of Odysseus reminiscing about his trip to Autolycus's, which I definitely want to take apart in the time that we've got left first off notice the scar as much as it is like an indication of who odysseus is like he's worried that eurycleia is going to recognize him because of the scar the scar has way more to do with odysseus's actual identity than he initially lets on like there's a really complex thematic development here um so let's take it apart bit by bit first off the scar is an identifying mark Eurycleia will recognize Odysseus and does recognize Odysseus because she remembers the scar in the exact same place. Um, now, the scar is connected to a boar hunt. Odysseus apparently got the scar from a boar when he was at his grandfather's Autolycus. Um, his house was like where he went and did the boar hunt. And notice Autolycus is important to Odysseus. His mother's father, remember? Um, the mother who he met in the un world of the undead, her father. And apparently Odysseus has strong connections here. Um, Autolycus was the best man on earth at thieving and lying, skills he had learned from Hermes directly. And furthermore, Autolycus is Odysseus's godfather too. He names Odysseus. Autolycus had visited Ithaca once when his grandson was still a newborn baby. After he finished supper, Eurycleia put the child in his lap and said to him, Autolycus, now name the child now name the child of your own dear child. He has been much prayed for. Then Autolycus made this response, Daughter and son-in-law of mine, give this child the name I now tell you. I come here as one who is odious, yes, hateful to many for the pain I have caused all over the land. Let this child therefore go by the name of Odysseus. For my part, when he is grown up and comes to the great house of his mother's kin in Parnassus, where my possessions lie, I will give him a share and send him home happy. There is so much to take apart here. So first off, Autolycus is the one who names Odysseus. Autolycus is the one who passes on the skill at thieving and lying to Odysseus. Autolycus names Odysseus after odiousness, like being smelly or disrespected, because Autolycus himself is disrespected because he has caused so much pain to his land. Autolycus, like Odysseus, is cursed, hated, odious. So Odysseus is like the spitting image of Autolycus on a lot of levels. Like, he definitely takes after Autolycus. He inherits the abilities that Hermes taught Autolycus. He inherits the disreputation of Autolycus. And he shares in the curse that lays on Autolycus. Autolycus is smart and hated for it. Odysseus is smart and hated for it. And notice that the rest of the scene 
is at Autolycus's house. Like, Autolycus, when he names Odysseus, says, hey, when he gets old enough, bring him to my house. I'm going to give him tons of gifts. I'm going to, like, totally favor this kid. I already, like, recognize that he is going to be a kid after my own heart. So this is what the story is. Odysseus goes to Autolycus's house, and his grandfather and all of his uncles and all of his family, they welcome him, and they're really excited to see him, and they, like, prepare this big meal for him, and they feast, and they have a really great time, and then they go out the next day, and they go out on this big hunting trip. And while they're on the hunting trip, like, this boar rushes Odysseus and hits him in the leg, and that's where he gets the scar. But Odysseus still takes out the boar. This is the scar that Eurycleia is going to see. This is the scar that, like, that Odysseus worries is going to identify him to Eurycleia. But this moment, as Homer really emphasizes it, and for why does he do this? Like, why do we take two pages out of this really intense moment to stop and tell this old story? Like, keep in mind, this is the moment, like really high-pitched, tense moment. Eurycleia is about to discover Odysseus's identity and ruin his whole plan, throw the entire plan of Athena and Odysseus into disarray, and then it's like, wait, stop, we need to talk about that time that he was at his grandpa's for a hunting trip. We're stressing this because it's important thematically. It tells us about the scar, for sure. Like, it's, it's an important flashback for plot reasons. But more importantly is the theme. Memory. Think about this in another light. Because again, like going on hunting trips is probably not something you're terribly familiar with. Like I know that Montclair is fairly far removed from, you know, the culture of hunters and gatherers and hunting for sport. Um, I grew up in Sussex County. I admittedly have never held, held a gun in my hands in my life and don't plan to anytime soon. But I know this story because I've heard it before. When you get to a certain age, when you are like a young boy, like 12, 13, become old enough to actually carry a gun, your dad or your uncle or your grandfather or whoever will take you out hunting for the first time. Like, it's a really big deal. Um, on the first day of hunting season, they might as well close school where I grew up because like half the boys are missing and a decent chunk of the girls as well. Like, first day of deer hunting season in December is practically a holiday in Sussex County. Um, and this is a rite of passage. This is important. Um, this is a really important bonding moment for fathers and sons, for families, for, you know, grandfathers and uncles. Like, whole families will go out hunting together. They will sit in the, sit in the woods and they will sit with their guns and they will wait and they will just be together. And this is what Odysseus is connected to here. Think about this from the perspective of Odysseus. Not as, like, a grown-up, because that's not how this is framed. As a child... Remember, Autolycus invites him to come to his house as soon as he gets old enough. So we're talking like 10 to 12. And Odysseus goes to Grandpa's house. And while he's at Grandpa's house, they give him tons of presents. And they get him all this really good food. And he meets all of his uncles. And they're all excited to see him. And they all go out hunting. And little kid Odysseus gets hit by a boar like he gets his thigh ripped up and it's a giant mess it's this huge gash but he still takes out the boar like he still manages to kill the boar it's his first kill 
Like, this is Odysseus becoming a man in the same way that Telemachus has become a man earlier on in this text. And he remembers it. So, of course, he, when he goes home, he's, like, screaming to Eurycleia, Oh, my gosh! There was this boar, and this boar ran out of me, and it, like, hit me in the leg, and it was bloody, and it was awful, and then I still stabbed it, and I still got the kill, and everyone was so excited, and we ate it for dinner that night. Like, he's thrilled about it. This is this important memory from Odysseus's childhood. This is this touchstone to everything that Odysseus is. And it connects everyone in Odysseus's life. Like Odysseus connects this to his grandparents, Autolycus, and all of his uncles and all of his cousins and all the people who he spent that happy time with. But it also connects him to Eurycleia. It connects him to Eurycleia because Eurycleia remembers this moment, how excited Odysseus was when he came home and he told her about, you know, this epic battle with the boar. Um, so, of course, Eurycleia recognizes the scar. A, it's probably a big, giant scar, and Eurycleia has probably been washing his feet a lot, like he was his nursemaid. This is the person who took care of Odysseus when he was growing up. But also, just, there's this deep well of memory that's being accessed here in this moment. When Eurycleia recognizes the scar, she puts it all together. She attaches the scar to the moment, to Odysseus, to the family, to his home, to his happy times and his childhood. All of this is wrapped up and Homer draws on this. Like in, as much as this is a two-page digression at this really tense moment in the story, he manages to capture it very efficiently to show us how significant this scar is to who Odysseus's very being is. Remember, this is the same grandfather who passed on his name who passed on his wit, his intelligence, his deviousness. It's all wrapped up in this one little image, this one little scar. Eurycleia isn't recognizing Odysseus because a scar is just like an identifying factor. The scar is who Odysseus is. It's caught up with his name, his identity, his personhood. Eurycleia knows Odysseus by the scar because Odysseus is his scar in a way. Um, this is what I mean by this thematic development. This is what Homer is saying about memory. We are our memories. We are caught up in our memories. Our name is our memory, and our heritage is our memory, and our skills are our memories. And everything we are, everything we become, is bound up with that. We are not just recognized by the memories that people have of us. We are ourselves memories wrapped up in who we are, in our identity. It's complicated. It's tricksy. It's rich. Um, this story defines Odysseus as a person. Um, in the same way that his narrative about like sailing across the sea as he was telling it to the Phaeacians defines who he is. Um, now... Notice, Eurycleia recognizes it, and, like, she freaks out. Like, there's this big mess, and they spill all the water, and Eurycleia is, like, practically having a heart attack. And then Odysseus is like, oh, crap, and she's, he's, like, strangling her or threatening to strangle her. And, like, do you want to destroy me? You yourself nursed me at my own breast, and now, after 20 hard years, I've come back home. Now that some god has let you in on the secret, you keep it to yourself, do you hear? He threatens her, which, you know, again, he's paranoid. He's trying to protect himself. But notice, too, what Penelope is doing during this. Notice, this is section, this is like line 521 
or 522, she spoke and turned her eyes toward Penelope, wanting to show her that her husband was home, but Penelope could not return her gaze or understand her meaning, for Athena had diverted her mind. Now, again, what's going on with Penelope? Like, here it is, the defining moment. Eurycleia has identified who Odysseus is. She, she turns to Penelope and she's like, Penelope, it's Odysseus, he's home! Everything is going to be great now! And apparently Penelope is in this, like, supernatural stupor. Like, Athena has just paralyzed her for some reason, just taken her out. Or is she just acting like it? Like, it's hard to say what Homer is actually doing with Penelope here. It's very tricksy. And then, you know, we get this, like, when Penelope actually, like, tunes back into the conversation after the scar is, you know, covered up and everything's fine, um, Penelope tells him about this dream. The, the, apparently there, there was this dream she had. Tell me what it means. In my dream, I have 20 geese at home. I love to watch them come out of the water and eat grains of wheat. But a huge eagle with a hooked beak comes down from the mountain and breaks their necks, killing them all. They lie strewn through the hall while he rides the wind up to the bright sky. I weep and wail, still in my dream. And Achaean ladies gather around me as I grieve because the eagle killed my geese. Then the eagle comes back and perches upon a jutting roof beam and speaks to me in a human voice, telling me not to cry. Take heart, daughter of fame. Decarius, this is no dream but a true vision that you can trust the geese are the suitors and i who was once an eagle am now your husband come back and i will deal out doom a grisly death for all of the suitors notice penelope is like hey can you interpret this dream for me and p.s the dream interprets itself there's a bunch of geese she likes the geese an eagle comes and kills all the geese and she's very upset and the eagle is like, don't be upset, it's me, Odysseus, I'm home, and everything's going to be great again. I killed all the suitors. And Odysseus is like, what do I need to interpret? <laughs> there is no way to give this dream another slant. Odysseus himself has shown you how he will finish this business. The suitor's doom is clear. Not one will escape death's black birds. Now, first off, if Penelope has this dream that basically out and out tells her Odysseus is coming back and he's going to kill all the suitors. Why is she still despairing? Why does she still insist that Odysseus isn't coming back? Except to test him. Is it possible that she knows at this moment? And notice she rejects even this. Stranger, you should know that dreams are hard to interpret and don't always come true. There are two gates for dreams to drift through, one made of horn and one of ivory. Dreams that pass through the gate of ivory are deceptive dreams and will not come true. But when someone has, passed, has a dream that has passed through the gate of polished horn, that dream will come true. My strange dream, though, did not come from there. If it had, it would have been welcome to me and my child. She insists, for no reason, like she literally makes a makes this myth, refers to this myth where dreams cannot be predicted. Some are true, some are false, you never know which are which. And she's like, except I know, because I know this one's a lie. I know that Odysseus is dead. Again, how? Like, it's completely irrational the way that she is behaving. And Homer has to know this. There's something going on with Penelope. More than meets the eye. She seems to have a better handle on what's going on than anyone seems to give her credit for. Even Homer, for that matter. Her actions don't line up with what she's saying. If she, in fact, believes that there's no hope that Odysseus can never come home, why did she talk to this beggar? Why does she, you know, reject this dream that seems to insist otherwise? Why does she, you know, tune out when Eurycleo discovers Odysseus's identity? Unless she actually knows. 
But notice, too, the detail of that dream. I grieve because the eagle killed my geese. She liked feeding the geese. I love to watch them come out of the water and eat grains of wheat. Is it possible that she likes having the suitors around for whatever reason? Maybe she likes the attention. Maybe she likes knowing that she is giving them hospitality. Maybe she likes being the ruler of her own household. It's not clear. Homer doesn't give us a straight interpretation on it, so you are welcome to find your own. Um, at the very least, it's more complicated than even Odysseus seems to suspect. Penelope almost certainly knows what's going on in some way, has some inkling, is in fact testing her husband the same way that her husband is testing her. And we'll see it again later when Odysseus and finally reveals himself to Penelope in the last part of the book. Um, and in fact, like notice the, her solution here is to devise a test, something that only Odysseus could do. So when Odysseus was at home, he apparently used to like shoot an arrow through like eight axe heads or a dozen axe heads or something. Um, so she's going to do that. She's going to like set up all the axe heads and Odysseus's bow and whoever can shoot an arrow through all the axe heads, they will marry her. Hooray. But it's a feat that only Odysseus has ever been able to, to accomplish. Um, so she's literally setting Odysseus up to reveal himself. Like, again, does she know? Does she not know? Does she suspect? Does she, is she, like, addled? Has she lost her mind because of her despair? It's really unclear. Um, now, some writers have sort of explored this since, like, I think especially of Margaret Atwood. Um, this is the same writer who wrote the original Handmaid's Tale back when it was a book and not a TV show. Um, she wrote a book called The Penelope Ad which is like the story of the Odyssey from Penelope's perspective. And in it, Penelope totally sees through Odysseus's disguises. She knows exactly what's going on. She only pretends to look away when Athena supposedly like diverts her attention. Um, she is 100% aware and she does kind of like the attention of the suitors, but she realizes she's in a very tricky situation. Atwood emphasizes Penelope's powerlessness in this case. And it's a powerlessness that I think Homer emphasizes as well. But Homer recognizes that Penelope is complicated. Penelope has multiple desires here. Maybe she does like being waited on by the suitors, even if she doesn't trust them, even if she is afraid of them. Maybe she does know that Odysseus is there, even if she doesn't 100% get to see it. Um, if she doesn't get to like vocalize it, maybe she's testing him. Maybe she suspects, maybe she does in fact know and is just playing a game. It's hard to say. Um, so I encourage you to read into that, like, especially if you are going to, you know, talk about women in Greek culture for the final or for the research paper, keep Penelope in mind because she is a major wrinkle in how the Greeks understand women. Homer is very careful about his development of Penelope. Even if it doesn't seem to make sense, that senselessness is part of what he's trying to capture. Even if her actions don't line up with reason, I suspect that he is giving us lots of room to interpret what Penelope is doing, why, why she acts the way she does. He gives us room to speculate. Like, as much as she is this sort of ideal woman, perfectly loyal, perfectly suited to Odysseus, she is also a human being in her own right, not just a tool, not just, you know, a, an, an object, a possession. 
She is not like Briseis getting passed around by heroes. She has her own agenda, in the same way that Calypso had her own agenda, and complains about the gods putting her down. Um, think this through, especially as we see her in the next passage. Um, but for next time, we will talk about the end of the Odyssey, we will talk about the competition, and we'll talk about the wholesale slaughter of the suitors. We'll talk about Odysseus finally like claiming his birthright and coming home for good and honest, and exactly how Penelope does react to that, as well as the weird stuff that happens in Book 24. Um, so I hope you're enjoying it. Do think about this. Like, do pay attention to these characters and what they are doing, because it is tricksy. Very, very tricksy.